Good morning. I invite you to return to your seats. You can actually sit down. We won't stand up right away. We'll do a little bit of uh, worship gathering aerobics this morning. A little stand up, sit down. Happy New Year. And welcome to all of you. Welcome to all of you that are watching online this morning. We're glad that you've all joined us um, in worshiping Christ our King. This morning we're kicking off a new sermon series through the book of 2 Thessalonians. It's one of the shortest books in the New Testament, and therefore this series is going to be quite a bit shorter than the one we just did through the book of Exodus. Right now we're thinking we'll spend about 14 weeks in 2 Thessalonians, which will take us right up almost to Easter. So why 2 Thessalonians now? Our original plan had been to move straight from Exodus to Hebrews because uh, there is such an overlap of concepts between those two books, and it seemed a natural progression to move from the Old Covenant in Exodus where we study the origins of Israel and the giving of the law and the building of the tabernacle to the study of the New Covenant and the way that those concepts and those things that happened in Exodus look now after the coming of Christ. However, as we neared the end of Exodus, we were discussing that, and we thought we had referenced Hebrew, Hebrews so much during our sermon series in Exodus that there might seem to be a lot of uh, repetition, and so we thought maybe we needed to have a buffer between those two books. So we finished 2021 with uh, another mini-series through Psalms, and then we, we decided that we wanted to start 2022 with a shorter book from the New Testament. I'm sure some of you wonder, how do we select the book that we're preaching through? Well, I can tell you that the process is probably less mystical than some might imagine. We uh, brainstorm and we throw out some ideas, and then we uh, study those books that have been thrown out, and we discuss them, and we pray about it, and we study them, and we discuss them, and we pray about it some more, and then we discuss it some more, and eventually we come to a consensus, hopefully, and then when we come to a consensus, we study that book and discuss it some more and pray, and if we're still convinced that that's the book we should preach through, that's what we do. And so uh, that's what we did, and we came up with 2 Thessalonians. Uh, some of the determining factors in our selection when we choose a book is that we want to preach the whole counsel of God's Word. We want to preach from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We want to preach through a variety of genres, so we don't want to preach just epistles or just gospels. Uh, we take into account the major themes of the book and how it would fit with our church. We take into account the types of books that we've preached through recently. And, of course, as I've said before, we continually ask for the wisdom of God in making our decision. As we studied through 2 Thessalonians, we noticed two major themes. First, we noticed that Paul speaks about the steadfastness of the Thessalonian Christians and their need to continue to stand firm in the face of persecutions and afflictions. In his opening prayer, Paul gives thanks for their steadfastness and, 
in the face of um, all the things that they've been facing. In chapter 2, he encourages them to stand firm and to hold to the traditions that Paul has taught them. In chapter 2, he also asks God to establish their hearts in every good work and word. And finally, in chapter 3, Paul exhorts them to not grow weary in doing good. So the idea of their hearts being established in God's Word and, and in good works so that they remain steadfast is one of the major themes of 2 Thessalonians. The second major theme is the second coming of Christ. Paul had taught extensively on this topic during his first letter to the Thessalonians. And now in his second letter, in chapter 1, he instructs them about the judgment to come when Christ returns and the destiny of the wicked and of the righteous. In chapter 2, he addresses a misconception that some of the Thessalonians had that, that Christ may have already come. And so he gives them a teaching that, that Christ will not come until the man of lawlessness is revealed. And so the return of Christ is the second major theme that we see. And with these two major themes in mind, we developed our tagline for the sermon series that you can see up there, established in the hope of our coming Lord. And our prayer for Piney Ridge Church is that as we preach through this book, that you will be firmly established by God in the Word of God and in good works, that you will stand firm in the midst of trials and afflictions because of the hope that you have and the inheritance that you will receive when Jesus Christ returns. Today, I'm going to look at just the first two verses of this book. And through those verses, we'll see uh, some information about the background, the context of the book, the setting. And then we'll examine the at least the first part of the greeting that Paul gives to the church in Thessalonica. So please turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. It's one of those books in the Bible that if you turn two pages at once, you might miss it. And if you need to use your table of contents, don't be embarrassed about that. But please turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And now I will ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit will work mightily in our church. I pray that you will, through this sermon series, that you will establish each person in Piney Ridge Church, establish them in word and in good works, establish them in the hope of the return of Christ, Lord, so that they may stand firm and be steadfast when they face afflictions and trials. Lord, do a mighty work through the preaching of your word, not just today, but throughout this sermon series. We depend on you, we need you, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Second Thessalonians is an example of an ancient letter or epistle. 
most epistles adhered to a set formula. Uh, most of them begin with stating who the author is and to whom he or she is writing. And then there is a greeting, sometimes a very long and effusive greeting, and a blessing which leads into the body of the letter. And then the letter concludes with a final blessing and sometimes more greetings. Notice in verse 1, but the letter is from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So let's talk about these three people for a minute. Paul was a Jew, a Pharisee who was living in Jerusalem just a few years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. He passionately pursued, or persecuted the church. He imprisoned many Christians. He approved of the stoning of Stephen. And he was on his way to Damascus to arrest more Christians when Jesus Christ appeared to him. And Paul was knocked to, his, uh, to the ground and he was saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus appointed him an apostle to stand alongside the, the 12 original apostles and called him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people of the world. He went on three missionary journeys throughout much of the known world, the ones that are recorded in the book of Acts, and may have taken a fourth missionary trip after he was released from his Roman imprisonment. And it was on his second missionary journey that he first visited Thessalonica and started a church there. Silvanus, which is the Greek form of the name Silas, was a leader and a prophet in the church in Jerusalem. And there was a, a time when some Jewish believers went to Antioch and was were attempting to convince them that they needed to convert to Judaism, that the men needed to be circumcised in order for them to be saved. And so there was a council in the church in Jerusalem, and Silas and Barnabas were sent to Antioch, and they were sent there to assure the Christians, the Gentile Christians in Antioch, that they did not need to convert to Judaism in order to be saved. And, and then Barnabas and Silas both stayed on in Antioch as leaders there. Barnabas accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey, and Paul chose Silas to accompany him on his second missionary journey. Later, we read in the book of 1 Peter that he was Paul, a Peter's secretary for writing that book. Timothy was a young man from Lystra. He had a a Greek father and a Jewish believing mother. And Paul and Silas encountered him when they visited Lystra early in their second missionary trip. And Timothy so impressed Paul that he invited him to accompany them for the rest of their journey. And Timothy became a faithful disciple of Paul. He accompanied him on his, not only his second but his third missionary journey. And he was a very faithful friend when Paul was imprisoned. And later he served as Paul's representative to many churches. And so that's, that's who sent the letter. And, and notice that it says it's from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. But it's obvious in the letter that Paul was the chief and probably the sole author 
of the book. And perhaps he mentioned Silvanus and Timothy because they acted as his scribes writing down what he dictated, or maybe because Paul just wanted to acknowledge that they were his fellow workmen in Thessalonica. Uh, the recipient of the letter is the church in Thessalonica, which was a thriving metropolis that was a seaport on the Thermaic Gulf. And it lay at the crossroads of a... Can you put that map up, Mike? There you go. It lay on a crossroads of a major north-south um, trade route and then an east-west highway that was called the Ignatian Way. It was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. Rome had awarded the Thessalonians many freedoms that a lot of other cities didn't enjoy. They didn't have to pay taxes, for example, or at least much, much tax. They were allowed to elect their own leaders and who governed according to primarily their own laws. Of course, they had to abide by the laws of Rome as well. And uh, the, the freedoms that they had came at, at, at a cost. They were expected to worship the Roman emperor and they were generally ex expected to keep the peace and remain loyal to Rome. So the missionaries came from to Thessalonica from Philippi, which you see is a little bit to the northeast there. In Philippi, Paul and Silas had uh, been arrested, beaten with rods, thrown into jail, and, and chained in the stocks. God rescued them by sending an earthquake at midnight, whereupon they preached the gospel to the jailer and his family who believed and were saved. And then after encouraging the church, they left Philippi, and it took them three days to walk to Thessalonica. We read about their time in Thessalonica in Acts 17. Luke tells us that they spent the first three Sabbaths in the synagogue in Thessalonica. And he says they persuaded some Jews... A great many devout Greeks, and, Luke says, not a few leading women. However, the Jewish leaders became jealous of all the people who were uh, following Paul's teaching, and so they created an uproar in the town, claiming that Paul was defying the decrees of Caesar and was proclaiming another man, Jesus, to be king. A near riot ensued. And they couldn't find Paul, apparently, so they arrested Jason, who was hosting the missionaries, and he was taken into custody. And so the church, fearing for the safety of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, encouraged them to get out of town. We're not sure exactly how long the missionaries stayed in Thessalonica after those first three Sabbaths, but we do know they were long, there long enough to establish a church. After leaving Thessalonica, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy went to Berea, where they had great success in preaching, gained quite a few converts. However, the Jews that caused the trouble in Thessalonica heard that this was going on in Berea, so they went over to Berea and caused an uproar in that town, and the believers decided that Paul needed to leave there as well for his own safety. And so he went to Athens... But while he was at Athens, he was anxious to know how the Thessalonian church was faring because he had heard that they had undergone a great amount of persecution after they'd left. And so he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out how they were doing. And Paul ended up going on to Corinth with Silas, and Timothy met them there 
and came back with a report about the church in Thessalonica. First of all, he said, they are remaining steadfast despite persecution and affliction. Second, he said, they have some questions for you about the second coming of Christ. And third, he said, there is an issue. A lot of them are idle. They're not working. Some of the members apparently were mooching off of wealthier church members and taking advantage of their wealth and, and not making their own living. And so in response to those things, Paul wrote a letter to the Thessalonians, and that's the first letter to the Thessalonians. We don't know who delivered that letter, and we don't know who came back with a report, but they came back with a very similar report to the one Timothy had given. Yes, they are still remaining steadfast, but they still have some questions about the second coming, some different questions. And yeah, there's still some people in the church who aren't earning their living. And so all of that motivated Paul to write a second letter to the Thessalonians, probably only a few months after he'd sent the first one. And that's the letter that we're going to be studying. As I said earlier, uh, an initial greeting, sometimes a very effusive greeting, is typical of epistles. And Paul's epistles to the Thessalonians are no exceptions. His greeting in 1 Thessalonians is longer and more flowery and may seem to be, have a more love for them in 1 Thessalonians, but the one in 2 Thessalonians is also uh, is, is just shorter. And, and again, that's typical of epistles. Whether they were religious or secular, having this big emotional flowery greeting in the beginning. But often that wasn't a genuine greeting. So it's kind of like this. Back when I was in college, somewhere around Paul's fourth missionary journey, before we had email and texting, I wrote something called letters to Sandy. And I would start the letter, Dear Sandy. Or if I was feeling especially romantic, my dearest Sandy. Those greetings were genuine. Okay? Sandy was, was dear to me, still is. Okay? But in the same period of my life, I was writing letters to school districts. And when I wrote those letters, I would say, dear Dr. So-and-so. I didn't know Dr. So-and-so. He wasn't dear to me. But I still wrote, dear, Dr. So-and-so, because that's how you started letters. So sometimes when I, wrote, when I would write, dear Sandy, or dear mom and dad, I meant that. If I wrote, dear Dr. And so-and-so, not really genuine, just the way we started letters. The point is that when we look, when scholars look at these old ancient letters, we see these kind of greetings all the time, and some are genuine and some are not. So what about Paul's greetings? He has these kind of greetings at the beginning of every one of his epistles. And as you read the epistles, it's obvious the, the love and the affection that he has for the churches that he's writing. And so these letters to the Thessalonians, he's He's sincere in the things he's writing in verses 1 to 4 in 2 Thessalonians. And so it, it behooves us to study them because Paul, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, was 
writing very genuinely. He meant, intentionally wrote the things that he wrote. And so we're going to look at the things that he wrote this week and next week in his greeting to see what it is that Paul is saying to us. It's noteworthy that the letter is addressed to the church of the Thessalonians. Not many months prior, there had been no church. Now, there was a collection of believers from various backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, Macedonian and Greek, wealthy and poor, male and female. And likely, while we had the Jewish believers who had been in the synagogue and worshiping one God, the Gentile believers had been worshiping the emperor, had been worshiping, they had temples all over the city of Thessalonica to various gods. And they likely had been worshiping all of these gods, hoping that they would receive a blessing from them. But now they are united in their faith in Jesus Christ to be their Savior. Now they have a union with a true and living God. And because of that, now they have a collective identity as a church that flows from their intimate relationship with God. And not just a collective identity. Now they're a family. Notice that Paul doesn't just stop at calling them a church in verse 1. He says, they are the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God isn't just the Father. Paul says he's our Father. It seems that, that Paul is wanting them to instill into the Thessalonian believers that they're now part of a family together with Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It seems that Paul is intent on instilling in this young church that they are united by their collective faith in God. He wants them to realize that they're part of a family that is loved by God, their Father, and Jesus, his Son. And we can apply this to Piney Ridge Church. We are Piney Ridge Church in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a relationship with each other that is thicker than blood because it, was a relation, it is a relationship that was bought by the precious blood of God's beloved Son. We are a family, and God is our Father. There's a bond between us that stirs the affections of our hearts my heart leaps when I see you on Sunday mornings. My heart leaps when I see my piney family on Wednesday nights. There's a strong bond of unity between us that is based on the fact that we are all united in Christ. And there ought to be an expression of that unity that exists between us that mirrors the unity that exists between God the Father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This should be a unity that stands the tests of offenses and disagreements. It's lamentable that there have been churches in the last few years that have split and divided over politics, over responses to COVID. And we ought to give humble praise to God that he has given us the love for each other, the unity that exists, the strength in our inner being to overlook offenses. 
and stay together, stay unified, and not be divided by issues like that. Let's not be arrogant or proud about it, but let's humbly pray that God will continue to unify us together in our church. If you're a follower of Christ, you ought to love his church. I encourage you all to to stoke those fires of affection that you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and particularly those who are fellow members of our church. One last note before we move on to verse 2. In both verses 1 and 2, actually, Paul is quite clear on who Jesus is. When Paul says, when Paul uses the word Lord in front of the name Jesus, that word Lord is the same word that they use in the Greek translation. The word that we translate Lord is the same Greek word that they use in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the divine name of God, Yahweh. And so when Paul says the Lord Jesus, he is very clearly saying to the church of Thessalonians and to us that Jesus is God. And, and many opponents of Christianity say, oh, nobody worshipped Jesus as God until centuries after Jesus was on the earth. But here's a letter written maybe a mere 20 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, and Paul says he is the Lord Jesus. He is God. And he's not just the Lord Jesus. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. We've said it before, but Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one, and it's the word that they use to translate the Hebrew word Messiah. When, Jesus, when Paul says the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying our God, Jesus, the Messiah. And he's saying to the Jewish believers, but also the Gentile believers in the Thessalonian church, that Jesus is, that you are part of, a, of, a, of the new nation of Israel, and Jesus is your long-awaited Messiah, who really is the same guy that you called Yahweh in the Old Testament. Leon Morris points out in his commentary that the language Paul uses here links God the Father and Jesus in such a way that leaves no doubt that they are two divine persons of the same divine essence. Paul clearly tells us that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God, and he is worthy and deserving of our worship, of our allegiance, and our love. But remember, the Thessalonians were supposed to be worshiping the emperor and these other gods that they had temples for in the city. And in the context of their culture, to abandon that worship and begin worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord would put them into serious conflict with the culture. There would be extreme pressure on them. There would have been peer pressure. There would have been economic pressure. There would have been governmental pressure to remain loyal to all the gods that were worshipped in Thessalonica. And so when they stopped worshipping those gods, 
in order to worship the one true living God, they encountered persecution. No doubt they were ostracized. No doubt they lost jobs. Perhaps they were imprisoned and perhaps tortured. Maybe some even to death. Think about it. Those of you that are covenant members with us of Piney Ridge Church, just think about if membership in this church was going to cost you your job, your livelihood. What if your friends would turn their backs on you? Your families disown you because of your membership in our church, because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ? What if gathering together on Sunday morning meant that some Sunday the police were going to break in and cart a bunch of us off to prison? That's what these brand new Christians were facing. And that is why Paul tells them and us that we need to be established in the hope of our coming Lord. We don't face that kind of persecution yet. But believe me, it's coming. And we have brothers and sisters around the world that face that kind of persecution because of their faith every single day, and we ought to remember them, and we ought to pray for them. And our prayer is that through preaching, from our preaching through Second Thessalonians, that the Holy Spirit will take the Word of God and establish you in such a way that you will be ready to face that kind of persecution. And even if not, that you'll be ready to face afflictions and trials that you go through. We pray that you'll be established in the hope of our coming Lord. Moving on to verse 2, we see a, a, a blessing from Paul to the church. He says, grace and peace. Now, peace, my piney family leader, Ryan Hyder, pointed this out when we went through Colossians. Peace is a common greeting in the Middle East. Still is today, was back then. The Hebrew word is shalom. When Paul says peace, he might have in mind the Old Testament conception of peace. When, when people in Old Testament times said peace to each other, the, the idea behind that word, shalom, was a, a well-wishing for the overall prosperity of the whole person but in particular, spiritual prosperity. It's kind of like when we say to people, be well. Although when people say that, they might just have physical wellness in mind. The, the Old Testament shalom was for an overall wellness and in particular, spiritual. Paul may also have in mind peace with God. Peace as an absence of hostility. He probably did not have in mind the conception of peace that we have today of some kind of inner tranquility, an easy, what was the eagle song? A peaceful, easy feeling, right? That's 
probably not what he had in mind. More likely, the Old Testament concept of overall wellness and prosperity or the idea of peace with God. But notice, Paul doesn't just say peace, does he? He says grace and peace. Grace precedes peace. True peace isn't possible without grace. Grace is an action of God toward his people that is undeserved and unearned. It's an action that is to lead to their peace, but also to their joy. It's interesting that the Greek word for grace is charis. And I won't get into the Greek because I don't understand most of it. But I do know that there's a related word in Greek. It's called a cognate. And that is translated joy. Grace and joy, the definition is interwoven. Grace leads to joy. The grace of God leads to our peace, and the grace of God leads to our joy. And Paul places this greeting here at the end of, or in the beginning of verse 2, because it flows naturally from the end of verse 1, where he says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which will result in grace and peace for you. But not only that, he finishes up and, and, and repeats himself word for word. He says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Thessalonians have grace and peace not only because they are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but because God is the source of that grace and peace. There is no true grace apart from God. And without an act of grace, you will not have overall spiritual prosperity, and you will not have peace with God. I want to turn to Acts 17. It'll be up on the screen. And read the account of, of Paul's preaching to the Thessalonians. It says, it's starting in verse 1, Now, when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Paul says it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and rise from the dead. But why? Why was that necessary? And the answer is because we are all born, it says in Ephesians, children of wrath. We are not born at peace with God, but rather the objects of his wrath because we are sinners. We don't deserve grace and peace and joy, but God is the giver of that. And so Jesus had to suffer and die because God is a God of justice and somebody has to be punished for our sin. And we're either going to spend eternity in hell because we have rebelled against our Creator and we're not living according to the purpose for which He created us. 
Or someone had to die in our place, but there was only one person in the universe with enough moral, with the moral purity and with the value and the worth to stand in as our substitute, and that was God himself. But there's a problem. God cannot die. And so it was necessary for Jesus to come, to take on human flesh so that in his humanity he could die as our substitute, die in our place. He took our sin on himself so that we could, by faith in him, be declared not guilty. And then God put, for those who put their faith in him, takes the righteousness of Christ and places it on us like pure white robes. And we're not just declared not guilty, we are declared perfectly righteous. I don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. It's an act of grace. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer, but it was also necessary for him to rise from the dead. He had to rise from the dead for many reasons, but among the reasons is this, so that we too could have the hope that when he returns, we will be resurrected and be like him. We'll be resurrected into glorified bodies with no more infirmities, with no more death or dying, with no more growing old, and best of all, with no more sin and no more ability to sin. That's our hope. That's the hope that we need to be established in so that we can stand in the the persecutions that come, so that we can stand the afflictions that come. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation from the wrath of God, placed your faith in all that Jesus did to, to save you from the wrath of God and to forgive your sins, then you've been the recipient of God's grace. He gave you that faith graciously. And as a result, you have peace with God. As a result, when Jesus returns and you're living in in that glorified body, in his presence, you will have that overall wellness that the Old Testament people talk about when they say peace. You'll have peace. And you'll have peace with God. And you will be living in his presence. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy. That's our hope. That's our hope. Cling to it. Hang on to it. Ask God to help you hang on to that hope so that you can be established, so that you can stand firm. If you're not trusting Jesus Christ for your salvation, when we take communion here in a minute or two, I'm going to ask you to stay in your seats. I'll be in the back. I'd love to talk to any of you about the gospel. I'm going to ask you to stay in your seat and pray. Ask God to to enlighten your heart to see the glory of the gospel and to give you faith to believe. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you've had that 
faith affirmed by bat through baptism. I'm going to invite you here in a minute to come and partake of communion. We, we do that at Piney Ridge Church by exiting to the left, coming to the front, grabbing the elements, going back to our seats, and then praying together either with your family or with Christians around you, or if you so choose, by yourself, praying and, and ask God as you're taking communion this morning to just give you a fresh realization, a fresh understanding of the grace of God that has been, that has given you the faith to believe that, that the bread that you're eating represents his broken body and the juice that you're drinking represents the blood that he spilt for you. And rejoice in that. Rejoice in the peace with God that you have. Rejoice that you have this hope and ask God to establish you in the hope of your coming Lord. For those of you who should, you may now come and partake of communion. I forgot to mention that gluten-free is over here on the left.